AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for February 24th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Chester Wisniewski. Uh, Chester is the Senior Security Advisor at Sophos Canada. And Chester, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little about what you do? Sure. Um, I've got a pretty sweet job, uh, to be honest. <laughs> I get to kind of use Sophos Labs, our, our research arm of the company, to find interesting things to look into that are, you know, from the perspective of the malware ecosystem. And then mm -hmm. uh, after doing a lot of research and working with my colleagues on figuring out how it works, I fly around the world and tell everybody about it. Oh, cool. I think I can reflect on that one a little bit. So welcome to the program. Glad to have you here. And uh, we have Jim Clausing online as well. Welcome, Jim. Hey. <laughs> An enthusiastic welcome. <laughs> and uh, in the studio here, we have uh, Matt Kaiser. Welcome, Matt. How's it going? And uh, Stan Norilov. Welcome back, Stan. Thank you. Two weeks in a row, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> All right. Great. And I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, let's get right into it here. Uh, first, Stan, why don't we go to you? And, uh, you know, there's no shortage of exploit kits, and so um, we've got some new ones coming out. This one has a little bit you know, some special features associated with it, right? Yes, I think, uh, well, to start, uh, the guys at Trustwave did a pretty good analysis of the rig exploit kit. I guess some uh, source code was leaked, and um, they did an analysis. They have a lot of detail on their, on their blog entry online, but some things that stood out uh, for me is the architecture of it. You know, as mm -hmm. security researchers, we usually only get to see the high level uh, or the first uh, step where the... Um, uh, where the victim meets the exploit kit, so to speak. But there's apparently this whole other set of things in the back end that the guys use to make sure they keep their hosting up and lets them uh, continue staying up. So it, it's an interesting article, uh, and I, I like how they go into the architecture of it because I think most people probably don't understand how it works. There's a lot of advanced features that they support in order to continue helping themselves stay up and keep their hosting. They even, uh, you know, probably uh, standing behind some uh, servers that are legitimate, like uh, I think uh, Cloudflare or something like that, mm -hmm. which is a legitimate uh, hosting provider, uh, but uh, allows things like this, which might be illegitimate, to continue having hosting. Mm -hmm. And the, another thing that they did is, um, uh, well, this rig exploit kit, it actually separates the privileges of the different components of the exploit kit. For example, there's a customer management interface. That's one server. There's a, the server that has all the exploits on it. Uh, that's another component in the architecture. And then there is a, a set of compromised machines uh, that they use to actually redirect people. And those servers that host the exploit kits, that's, a, that's yet another component. Mm -hmm. So by keeping everything separated like that, uh, they're probably able to make sure that security researchers kind of don't have all of the components Right. all in one place to be able to tag them down easily. Um, so a very interesting article. Uh, they also showed uh, the, I guess, some of the, like how the guys are structured, uh, how the, I guess, the operators of the exploit kit are structured. And uh, based on some of their rough calculations, they think like this exploit brings the, their operators about $90,000 a week or something like that. Wow. 
So, but, I mean, those are rough estimates. It may not be accurate, but mm -hmm. it's just something, uh, you know, something interesting to note. All right. Now, is there any speculation on how many people might be behind that? I don't think uh, I saw that in the article. Okay. It's, it, it, that's always uh, sort of an interesting topic from my point of view. Something, again, you don't really see the back-end infrastructure associated with it, but when you consider the complexity of some of the tools that are out there and how, how they have to basically divvy up whatever, you know, malicious gained revenue, how much they're really making in the end. You know, there have certainly been some cases where it looks like it's uh, been sort of lucrative for the attackers, but there's also a growing amount of risk associated with that end of the business as well. Right, and I think they're really trying to cater to uh, make it simpler for people. So mm -hmm. as a customer of the rig exploit kit, you'd just be exposed to the customer-facing website, and you can upload your malicious software, mm -hmm. and everything happens uh, in the background for you. You know, really all the obfuscation of the malware and delivery to the victims, that all happens behind the scenes. I think for like $160 a week, as what they quoted, you can have mm -hmm. you know, something like that, and I think they said it's about 10 to 15% infection rate, so of all the people coming through, mm -hmm. exploits work 10 to 15% of the time. Um, so it's pretty significant, you know, depending on uh, uh, how many compromised servers they have out there and um, yeah, what the flow through rate is. They also mentioned, uh, you know, you said about numbers, how many customers they have. And uh, mm -hmm. there's several hundred customers that uh, the researchers at Trustwave were able to pin down. So I don't know how many bad guys there really are, but the number of customers they have is in the hundreds. Okay. You know, it, it, this is a, a somewhat tangential, but the, uh, it, when you said about the infrastructure and the back-end portion of it, when it, it reminded me of, you know, having been tracking botnet activity and the evolution of that. You know, when, one of the f sort of fundamental concepts that at, at least I have, have seen is that there really is very little revolution and attack capabilities. So the techniques are really just, you know, incremental changes, improvements improvements from a sort of a malicious point of view to try to deal with the problems that they're running to, into along the way. And I remember back when a botnet may have consisted of, you know, two IRC controllers and they were overcoming things like, well, IRC is not all that scalable. You have to have some other way of, of managing it. And it's, you know, you know, became uh, very volatile in that, you know, they'd knock down an IP address and so it would, it would take down the botnet. And so they started using more and more controllers. Well, then you have a, a new kind of management problem and then they went to P2P networks and uh, deliberately spreading them across different international boundaries so that it would slow down the process of, of trying to implement blocks. So uh, interesting how these, uh, the backend infrastructure has evolved over time, but it is very much an evolution. That's one of the things that I think is very valuable about doing threat analysis is that you can, once you've learned the history, you actually can predict a little bit about what the technology might go to in the next phase. Well, I think one of the interesting things to me was just this using of proxies to disguise the location of the exploits and the mm -hmm. uh, malicious code itself. And that, you know, one of the more successful techniques the, we have for blocking these things and protecting people from getting victimized is that there's not a lot of hosts out there that are willing to intentionally host exploits and, and payloads. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of this, you know, known malware destination type thing going on out there that can help, you know, web filters, antivirus, et cetera, block a lot of these things. And by, by having this kind of fast rotating proxy service, that really, um, that obfuscation really complicates uh, the detection method, meaning you have to now detect the code itself. You can't just detect the reputation of where it's coming from. 
Absolutely. So that from a um, uh, from an internet service provider point of view, it's, it's certainly more complicated. From a from a uh, observer's point of view is certainly more complicated. You know, one of the things, and I think you're kind of hedging on this, that is as a cloud service provider, as a hosting provider, I think there's a, fundamentally a responsibility to be paying attention to how the service is being used. That is, if you're selling a service that's ultimately being used for a malicious purpose, you know, it's almost a, 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 you know, a contributor to the activity. And so, it, I mean, it, not that it's easy, but there's still uh, appears to be, at least in my opinion, uh, some level of responsibility of the service provider to understand how those services are being used. Thanks, Stan. That was uh, a good discussion there. And uh, you know, you're alluding to, you know, some of this activity being hosted in the back. I guess, chat. You've been, you've done a little bit of study on servers that may be helping to facilitate exploits. Do you have any comments? Yeah, I did some interesting research. There was a uh, conference in Los Angeles this weekend called the Southern California Linux Expo, and they asked me to come and talk about some Linux security stuff. And it's not something we focus on all that much uh, because most of the, you know, we're looking at all these exploits. While an exploit may work, say, on Flash for OS X and Linux as well as Windows, the way we see the criminal, uh, you know, the criminals typically weaponize this stuff, it's almost always focused on the Windows victims. So I started poking around and saying, well, what what role or what, uh, I guess, yeah, what role does Linux play in this malware ecosystem, right? We know most of the web hosting infrastructure out there is running on some sort of a Unix or a Linux-based system. And I wanted to kind of compare, say, to the Netcraft data just to see what kind of trends we might see. And there were some really interesting bits that came out of it. I mean, it looks like from my research, which is I took one week's worth of malicious URLs from our lab, which was about 178,000 malicious URLs that we cataloged in one week from February 1 to February 6. And then I went and cataloged each one, like, you know, what CMS might they be running? What web server might they be running? That kind of thing. And it was 79.9% of them were running either Unix or Linux that were hosting the exploit kits, the payloads, the infected blogs, the malicious redirects, the JavaScript, etc. And um, surprisingly, uh, there were some interesting bits around servers that are compromised to direct victims to bad things had different characteristics quite dramatically than servers that were intentionally hosting bad things and waiting for victims to be directed there. So mm -hmm. going back to the rig you know, uh, discussion we just had, you would see the infected blog that's legitimate, that's directing traffic, and those 16% um, more of them were running Apache than any other web server. Hmm. Whereas when we look at servers that were hosting the malicious payload, perhaps the banking Trojan or the keylogger or whatever they're trying to install in the end, those servers had a propensity to run Nginx more than other web servers. So yeah. um, I haven't really fully analyzed the, the data to, to get all the details out of it yet because it's, it's quite a, a treasure trove of, of stuff I collected, but some interesting trends are emerging. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I, I think what we've seen in the past, you know, in terms of the Internet Weather Report, there have been a number of cases where we've seen actually searching around. It was a Tomcat server, for example, um, weak passwords. And so perhaps one of the vectors that are being used to actually get to these Apache web servers and to be able to host the, the malicious payload. Stan's nodding. Yeah, a large portion of them were running cPanel as well. Now, I don't yeah. know that cPanel was the way they, they necessarily got in, but we did see worms exploiting the shell shock vulnerability that were targeting cPanel, so that oh, might yeah. be one of the reasons. Yep.
Did you gather statistics on WordPress, Joomla, the other common CMSs? Because I have a feeling those would be pretty well represented as well. Yeah, that was harder to do. I, I didn't, I don't have numbers that I'm scientifically comfortable with yet. I did look mm -hmm. at those and saw that it was a very small number of Drupal and seemingly equivalent numbers of Joomla and WordPress sites um, that are part of the attack chain. And again, much heavier on the infected sites side than the hosting sites side. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's what I'd expect. I'll be publishing the data over the next uh, few weeks at once I, you know, I've got some anomalies in the data and I just want to check with my colleagues and make sure that they're actually interesting anomalies and not me screwing up the statistics. So once, once I have colleague verification that I haven't made any errors, I'll be publishing it all on our blog and sharing it so that uh, other people can dig through it as well. Oh, great. Thank you, Chad. That uh, it sounds like a, a, a prudent exercise to, to make sure that your statistics are good. And uh, we're definitely looking forward to seeing, seeing what gets published here. Very interesting study there. And, and you know, anytime you ever get an infection, the first thing you should do to try to get rid of it or get it under control is shut it off. Shut off the machine. Right, Jim? Yeah, well, with my forensic hat on, I don't want you powering it off until I get a chance to take a look at it. But okay. AVG had an interesting blog post this past week about a, a newly discovered Android malware sample that they were seeing mostly in China and it, relatively few infected devices as of the time they wrote it up, but it was... Uh, had some interesting characteristics. They they call it Android uh, Power Off Hijack. And basically what this malware does is it hijacks the power off process. The you know, So when you hit the power button and tell your Android device to, to shut down, it, it goes through a, a series of steps. You know, it turns the radios off. It, you know, uh, sends the shutdown command, it blanks the screen, whatever whatever all it does. Well, this malware um, intercepts some of that, and what it'll do is it'll blank the screen and uh, turn the sound off so that the user believes that the system is shut off, mm -hmm. but it will continue to, to operate. So it'll continue to have the ability to make and receive phone calls that the user doesn't know anything about to... Uh, you know, send and receive uh, SMS messages, to record audio, to uh, record video, take pictures, and ship all of this off to the the bad guys. And the only way that the user would necessarily know that this happened is that the battery would actually be drained a little more quickly than you'd expect if the thing was completely powered off. It does require getting root permissions. So if you have not rooted your phone, then, uh, then this probably isn't going to work unless, they've, uh, unless somebody else adapts this and finds some privilege escalation uh, exploit that I'm not familiar with at the moment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so if you haven't rooted your phone, if you're not going to Chinese app stores, at the moment you're probably okay. But... Um, uh, Tim Strazier from Lookout was commenting in a mailing list that I'm on with him that uh, that while this is one of the first times that we've seen this technique used, it isn't the absolute first time. Mm -hmm. the, something similar was done by the uh, 
bigserve.a malware uh, a few years ago in one of the infected um, droid dream cleaners, something that claimed to clean up a droid dream infection, mm -hmm. an app that claimed to clean up the droid dream infection, actually used some similar techniques. So, yeah, it, um, I, I like the first paragraph of the of the AVG blog post. So, you know, they're talking about in we in Hollywood movies we see the hackers, you know, that can turn on the mobile devices or track you even when the thing is turned off. And you know, that's fiction, but this particular malware it makes the user believe that it's turned off. So well, you know, in our labs, we see like 3,000 some odd Android samples coming in every single day, and yet almost every single one of them, again, requires that you've gone off market, right? So like you said, not all of them require root like this one does, but if your enterprise mobility management tool lets you say, don't allow rooted devices and, you know, don't allow users to untick that or tick that checkbox that says, you know, allow off market applications, um, you largely avoid yep. most of the malware problem. Yep, absolutely. And uh, we've been saying that over and over again. So, Jim, any indication specifically where this uh, where this malware was hosted? It doesn't say, but it it, it is in China. I mean, if you look through some mm -hmm. of the code, um, there some of the comments and some of the log stuff is in Chinese. Mm -hmm. So it, it appears to have been primarily targeted for at the Chinese to this point. Mm -hmm. And hosted in you know, Chinese third part third party okay. markets. And any indications of the uh, motivation behind it? What the purpose might be? The malware has the ability to do a lot of things. To it does all the all the nasty things that the bad guys like to do on the mobile devices. Yeah. Okay. Probably not keep your apps up to date, however, right? No. <laughs> So, you know, the thing that came to mind, and, you know, you mentioned send and receive SMS. So I was wondering if they perhaps they'd found any uh, any filters to intercept uh, to uh, facilitate, you know, bypassing a two-factor authentication or using SMS as a, as a back channel. Technically, I don't really think of that as, you know, as a two-factor authentication, but at least it's, you know, it's sort of a back channel uh, path that, uh, unfortunately, through means like this can be intercepted. So... Uh, better, but probably not the best way to do, um, you know, strong authentication. All right, very good, Jim. That's uh, you know, we'll have to keep an eye on this type of thing. And in, oh, by the way, I, I presume that uh, a hard shutdown would bypass this. Is that correct? Well, well that's not entirely clear. Uh, it should. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that they suggested was actually pulling the battery, mm -hmm. which is fine if you're using a device where you can get to the battery. Mm -hmm. These days, a lot of the devices, you know, you can't get to the battery. My phone, I can't get to the battery. My tablet, I can't get to the battery. So, mm -hmm. yep, it's becoming more and more the case. The batteries, uh, well, the battery technology has improved a lot. So, I think less and less they consider it to be a, a necessity. And if you run out of battery, you just kind of plug in another USB thing so you can get infected that way, right? <laughs> I think uh, right. to help with that situation, just give your phone to your kids, let them watch some YouTube videos. It'll probably be dead in like two hours. So you can be sure. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing, I guess. I mean, like giving somebody advice saying, hey, you know, hard shut off. I mean, wouldn't the advice be get rid of the virus? <laughs> yeah, good idea. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, thank you, Jim. And uh, Matt, let's go to you. And I guess, uh, you know, this is a, a pretty big story here. 
I, yeah. It needs no introduction. I'll need, let well, you go ahead. Let's and do introduce it, it then. <laughs> uh, Superfish. If you've been on the internet this week, you've heard about it. Mm -hmm. So, between September of last year and February of this year, Lenovo was shipping some of their laptops with software called Superfish, which was supposed, you know, it was adware, and its purpose was to inject relevant advertising mm -hmm. into web browser sessions based on your search terms. It turns out that in order to do this, it was playing some tricks with SSL mm -hmm. and intercepting SSL at the browser. It was installing itself as a trusted root certificate, mm -hmm. which means that it had the ability to, if any certificates were presented against the browser, the browser would check and say, do we know this guy? And it would say, yeah, Superfish, I'm here. You can trust anything that, that has my name on it. So no. it's it's kind of like uh, legitimizing that you know browser in the middle, or man it is, in the browser. It is exactly man is. in the middle. That it's yeah. for for advertising purposes. Mm -hmm. Now it turns out that their implementation had let's just say a few bugs. Um, one of the problems with it is that the key the, the the certificate itself that they were using could be extracted very trivially from memory. And Robert Graham actually demonstrated this, where he mm -hmm. ran the software, found the, the certificate in memory, pulled it out, and then tried to sign his own cert with it and found out that, oh, look, it needs a password. Brute force the password. Turns out the password is And I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying that, because it's mm -hmm. all over the internet. Now, this is a terrible password. If you know anything about the, the DLL that's being used, this is a terrible password. It at least didn't show up in Jim's list. It will show up in Jim's list tomorrow. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> I promise you it will. There are a lot of guesses on it. So the, the other problem with it is um, Filippo Lasorda, I hope I'm getting his name right, did some research um, around the implementation of SSL interception. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that you can actually trick this Superfish Commodia software into modifying non-legitimate SSL certificates in a way to make them appear legitimate. Mm. Now, I can go into the details. It has something to do with a, an extension to X509, the, the alternate name field, where if you put your target server name in there, it'll take a look at it and say, okay, well, thumbs up, it's in there somewhere, mm -hmm. and it'll appear to be, to be valid. This is terrible because anybody using a Lenovo laptop, not only are they, you know, not only could somebody create their own certificate that these laptops will obey, mm -hmm. they'll also be vulnerable to self-signed un un right. unauthenticated certificates. Mm -hmm. So in general, this is, this is kind of a huge mistake. Really kind of, I mean, subverting the entire authentication intention behind SSL. The, right? the basically, shooting SSL in the foot for anybody with a laptop with this installed. Mm -hmm. Now, Lenovo has, after a little bit of resistance, apologized, provided ways for removing it, will not be installing it on future machines. Mm -hmm. Symantec, McAfee, Microsoft have all added this to their antivirus. This will be automatically removed, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, and Lenovo has published a list of laptops that are affected by this. Mm -hmm. So um, things are being fixed, but uh, it turns out that this is not the only place where this software is actually available. The Commodia technology is in a couple other products. Some of them are legitimate-ish, some of them are straight up malware. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's raising a lot of questions on SSL interception, the legitimacy, the right reasons to do it, the wrong reasons to do it. Um, yeah. So now we've got this mess. I think this is a really a sort of a broader topic. You know, it's a, it, I mean, a lot of folks have said it's kind of like the Wild West out there. I, I've been saying for years that there really are no rules on the internet. They're really guidelines. And it really has, I think, a lot to do with the transparency of 
the provider. And, it, and so to go into this a little bit further, you know, that there's a, a big effort to try to monetize access to internet and to, to, to provide users with the least expensive access to internet capabilities as possible, whether it be the PCs themselves, uh, you know, browser access, uh, network service, you name it. They're trying to provide it as inexpensively as possible and to recoup whatever costs through advertising mechanisms. And so this this is a, a, a case, in, the way I see it, a case where they were trying to do what they felt to be a legitimate thing mm. under the, you know, there are no rules environment, uh, but then perhaps overstepped or made some flaws in the implementation. A lot of this all comes back to debates we were having three or four years ago when CA after CA were being compromised, Diginotar and all this stuff that was going on, right? And, we really, I mean, you can easily detect and prevent this type of stuff if we get beyond the current CA model. I mean, the, the convergence proposal by Moxie Marlin spike a few years ago. I know some Google researchers had some other proposals where, you know, you can verify from multiple, kind of triangulate what should an SSL certificate look like, right? You know, have a, a P2P network where somebody on Comcast and somebody on uh, Shaw in Canada and then somebody, you know, on their laptop at Starbucks all compare what cert did they get and see that one of these things is not like the other. Mm -hmm. um, there are, you know, we've been dragging our feet on technical solutions to email insecurity, certificate authorities, all these things for years. Yeah, good point. And, and when you say we here, I think you're referring to basically the Internet ecosystem in general. Yeah, I'll blame Vint Cerf. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? No, uh, but you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. The big, the the big we of those of us that are in technical control of the internet, yeah. Um, which is you know the people participating in standards committees, whether that's ICAM, whether that's you know AT and T as a service provider. Mm -hmm. um, we all play a role in this and in, in moving standards forward. And you know, Google's been doing a lot to move a lot of standards forward lately. And I think I'd like to see more large tech companies with influence get involved, saying you know enough is enough. Let's build a secure internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, uh, the the important thing in all of these is to try to uh, recognize ulterior motives in those activities. That uh, there is oh, potentially yeah. there's potentially a difference between trying to make a more secure internet and, and trying to protect your own business model for uh, monetizing uh, use of the internet. So there there are some uh, aspects of that that need to be uh, considered in the in that entire process, but. I agree with you thoroughly that uh, to try to push forward for uh, you know improving the technology and in fact improving the assurances around that technology that is you know a lot of the problems that we're seeing aren't necessarily a lack of technology they're just flaws in the implementation. There are technological ways to defeat you know this particular thing. I, there was an article in the Register today that um, Mozilla is thinking of of releasing a, a blacklist of dangerous root certificates that would include this one and just would not accept the the superfish certificate at all but you know there are deeper underlying issues in the whole infrastructure that you know mm -hmm. like chet was just saying yeah so the the notion of revoke certificates is uh it exists but i think it sounds like jim that this would be a basically an independent blacklisting of the of certain certificates yeah I, that's what mozilla is is considering doing mm -hmm. and you know we've seen the ie uh, you know microsoft has done ie updates that uh you know removed certain root certificates in the past mm -hmm. chrome and firefox 
both have done something, you know, have had similar updates in the past. So Mozilla is talking about putting that into a, a Firefox update probably. They said they could do it within 24 hours. Well, and this comes back to the standards being horribly, horribly broken again, which is in order to have a certificate system work, the original design required this concept of revocation. And then Google completely removed revocation checking from Chrome almost a year ago. So you can't even turn it on. There's no way to know if a certificate's been revoked. The only way you can even limp forward, if we want to call it that, is with this blacklisting concept, right? So the whole, you know, the whole certificate thing is, you know, a, a just broken, right? Because the, the the basic premises and concepts that we trust everyone issuing certificates, and if we screw up, we can undo it with a revocation. Both of those things are fundamentally broken. Yep, absolutely. But uh, again, good principles in, in terms of uh, paying attention to what uh, what you're buying or not. <laughs> uh, let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. The first item uh, that uh, worth showing to you here is actually scan probes on port 11.2.11 TCP again. This is that memcached uh, application basically for caching uh, uh, web servers. Uh, works on that port and uh, apparently has some uh, means to uh, to get in, perhaps to, to capture what's been cached. So subtly different than the shell shock situation, or actually, no, it was the heartbleed situation. Subtly different, you wouldn't be able to get in that to uh, to uh, private keys, most likely in that case. And then the uh, uh, a sort of a partner port on this one, port 6379, which is uh, associated with the Redis application, which is basically a streaming application. Again, associated with web server applications. This scanning, as well as uh, actually I'm showing scanning activity here on port 32764 as well, all associated with a single source in China that's been scanning across a number of ports. We've been reporting on this, 5800, 5900, 6379, 7001, 8009, 8090, 8088, 11211, and then 32764. By the way, 32764 is associated with a backdoor uh, into some home router activity. So uh, very much indicative of uh, malicious intent here that is defined uh, backdoors or uh, avenues into data or systems that uh, you probably hadn't intended to be there. Next item here is scam probes on 1720 UDP. This is associated with H323. It's used for uh, basically media over the internet, so it could be uh, associated with a, a voice uh, over IP call control, which is also oftentimes uh, managed through uh, actually port 5060, which is SIP. And in this particular case, it's primarily from a single source in Germany, which also happens to be scanning on port 22443 and 5060. Again, uh, a clear indicator they're probably looking for SIP gateways or VoIP, uh, VoIP gateways. Traditionally, this has been had been popular. Stan, you had done some investigation and right. looking for uh, gateways that could be potentially used for uh, fraud or toll bypass or toll fraud. Right. Um, I think a number of, I guess, a few years ago, a lot of scanning on 56, a SIP vicious scanning, it was just uh, a lot of it there. And yes, they were looking for all kinds of uh, toll fraud, act. Uh, I guess, servers that were open that they could use for mm -hmm. uh, toll fraud activity and things like that. Yeah, now clearly, um, you know, just looking at the graph here, we haven't seen a, a large quantity of this lately. It's been relatively low, but we did see a re relatively large spike just today uh, in this activity. We're only looking at, actually, I think there's actually some uh, 60 days of activity here, but it does give a relatively uh, good perspective of what's been going on, which is uh, 
not terrible, but uh, some really recent activity associated with this. Looking at the top 10 most probed ports, um, last week the top port was port 22 TCP. This week we're seeing port 23 TCP at the top. So we're gonna take a little closer look at that one, followed by port 135 TCP, port 22, that's uh, SSH, 9064, which is a, a proxy port, 445 TCP. We looked at sort of a long-term history, uh, I guess over the last year or so on port 445, that activity is going down as Configure is finally kind of withering away. Port 53 UDP, looking for those DNS servers, potentially open, open DNS resolvers. 1433, uh, Microsoft SQL database, 3389, remote desktop protocol. Port 1900 UDP, again, that could be used for um, uh, reflection attacks, so likely probing, looking for uh, those uh, simple service discovery protocol servers. And then uh, last but not least here, 8080 TCP, which was, is generally associated with uh, proxy service. That other bucket seems to be getting bigger every week. Is that me or? Oh, the other bucket? Well, that's a good sign, actually. It's, it's suggestive of, the, of other things uh, sort of being more predominant and uh, so, you know, spreading out possibly. I, I guess it depends on how you look at good right. things. <laughs> it, it, no, it's a good point. Uh, perhaps what I should do in the future is try to include, you know, how many other ports are involved. That is a, another statistic that we track. Uh, it, it could suggest uh, more diversity in the different the ports that are being scanned, right. and so less of them actually make it into. The, uh, so there'll be sixty-five thousand five hundred twenty-six other ports in that. <laughs> uh, it'll be actually it's more like one hundred twenty-eight thousand. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, because it so does did it you say PCP twenty-three? Isn't that sort of like leaving the front door open? I mean, it's sort of inviting trouble. Uh, well, actually, uh, it's, uh, it's funny you should mention that, Chet, because, you know, there are an awful lot of Internet of thing, Things out there, IoT, what I refer to as the unmanaged devices or poorly uh, created devices, ones that really should never attach to the Internet, but they're designed uh, or sold for that purpose, that do leave port 23 open. Uh, sometimes they even have an undocumented default password that, um, that you know, end users don't realize they need to change and uh, consequently uh, there are botnets out, of, out there that are basically scanning the internet, gathering these and then using for denial service attacks. So a lot of even the stressor services or booter services, you know, uh, denial service attack uh, that's been uh, capabilities that are commercialized are going out and exploiting the, these devices and using them for that purpose. You know, at least in a, somebody that's buying Solaris, I would hope is you know savvy enough to lock it down, put it in a you know behind a firewall and, and protect it reasonably well. A lot of these uh, of these other devices, they're being bought by residential users. They don't know what a port is, let alone what to do to protect it. And a lot of these uh, devices are they're firmware. They don't even really have a, a means for the end user to uh, to correct it, short of knowing that they can log in on Telnet and then go in and then perhaps change some parameters, which will reset once they reboot the device anyway. So, um, Yeah, I, I guess if, you, if you're seeing all these port probes for Telnet and likely you think it's related to sort of Internet of Things type things, whether that's, you know, smart fridges and TVs and thermostats and things, it almost suggests we kind of need to uh, evolve our thoughts around our home gateway routers in that, you know, designing them in a way with some sort of a, a DMZ for your Internet of Things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, some of these things are, in fact, the home routers. So, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've written about that only too many times. Yeah. So, but you're absolutely right. And uh, you know, we've got some things going on where we were looking to try to uh, 
uh, perhaps uh, in, inspire or motivate some improvements in the ecosystem around uh, IoT devices and uh, particularly ones that don't fit into the category of what I refer to as managed and uh, try to get some perhaps some uh, uh, you know safety standards around it so uh, hopefully some more news on that in the future but take a little closer look at the activity that we're seeing here we're showing 180 days of activity it's it's interesting to see the top graph which is actually showing the number of probes and the bottom graph that's showing the number of sources doing those probes prior to say 30 days ago uh, you can see you know further to the left where there's a really pretty close correlation between the number of sources that are doing the scanning and the number of probes we're seeing on the network that was very clearly worm related activity more devices scanning more probes more recently what we're seeing is a lot of probes not so many more devices introduced so that to me suggests uh, the possibility of a couple things uh, one, perhaps that the, uh, that the the scanning activity is in preparation to build a botnet, so we may have another uh, uh, player that's trying to get involved, uh, but or it could be you know some other sort of motivation. But in any case, they haven't really wor created that worm capability or the uh, you know the ability to uh, use many devices in that scanning activity in this particular instance. So it does look like it's a little bit of a different profile than we've seen before. We'll have to see how that evolves going on. But in any case, uh, in terms of the number of sources that have been probing, down relatively speaking, but uh, as we look on the next graph here, the pie chart, port 23 TCP still has the most sources doing the probing activity by far, uh, well in excess of port 445 TCP that we had seen as the predominant leader in the past. And then uh, actually, there really aren't too many others on this uh, particular pie chart. They're really worth mentioning. Just port 1900 UDP, usually that's associated with um, reflective denial service attacks themselves. And then port 80 TCP is uh, showing up on there in terms of, uh, and that's not unusual to see a lot of uh, sources probing for port 80. Speaking of reflected denial of service attacks, there was uh, an article by, I think Akamai put out a report that there's a uh, Microsoft SQL related port 1434. 1434, yes, is is being used now for UDP reflection. I'm I'm not surprised we didn't see it this week, but I have a feeling that we're probably going to see it in the coming weeks now that it's getting more press. That's certainly a possibility. Uh, we have been tracking it. It is included in our repertoire of things that we're tracking at this point. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the size of attacks or even the number of attacks, it's really way down in the noise still. Hmm. So we have seen, since you brought it up, some more sizable attacks using SNMP compared to recent, uh, previously, but still far and above the, some of the other parts, the, the, the DNS, the character generator, and the NTP are well, well, way above in terms of their contributions to uh, these reflective denial service attacks still today. To know. So, but it still could develop. I think, um, I think a lot of folks took their Microsoft SQL databases off the internet when the SQL Slammer worm just completely obliterated <laughs> a number of, uh, of systems. Hopefully some, the people that are really running those, assuming they're you know, 14 years later, they're still relatively the same people. Well, that's 14 years of brand new admins <laughs> who haven't learned that lesson yet, though. Yeah, it's a good possibility. So um, we'll have to see how many are really out there and see if that really develops. So, good, good topic to bring up. Thanks, Matt. And uh, that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can uh, reach us at email at 
ThreatTrack at list.att.com, and you can find ThreatTrack on the ATT Tech Channel. It's att.com slash ThreatTrack, and uh, it's also available on YouTube as well as iTunes. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. So, uh, Chet, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Oh, very much a pleasure. My only disappointment is that you couldn't be here, right here in Bedminster with us, but uh, perhaps next time. Uh, thank you, Stan. Thanks, Jim. I thanked you already, right? <laughs> we'll say we did. <laughs> I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.